The Knowledgeable Provider Podcast is intended primarily to entertain, also to inform, but it is not a substitute for actual medical training and should not be used by anyone to diagnose or treat any medical condition in themselves or others. If you need medical advice, please make an appointment to see your own knowledgeable medical provider. The opinions expressed by me and anyone else who happens to appear on the podcast are solely those of the people expressing them and are not necessarily representative of any other entities. Other than the lunches at the office, I do not receive any sort of compensation from pharmaceutical or medical device companies, and I have no other relevant financial disclosures. Look, this is all for fun, okay? Don't sue me. All right, on with the show. Hello, welcome to Knowledgeable Provider. I'm Jody Marks, your host. I'm so excited for you to hear this episode today. It's a great conversation with my friend, Mark Moore. Mark is currently the Development Director of the U.S. Space and Rocket Center Education Foundation here in Huntsville. He's worked in marketing, graphic design, and communications for the past 30 years. He has served as the board president of the American Advertising Federation of North Alabama, has served on the Huntsville Public Arts Committee, and was a member of Leadership Greater Huntsville. He very much enjoys sharing his perspective as part of multiple diversity, equity, and inclusion committees, including the Alabama Conference of Theater DEI Committee and Huntsville's Human Relations Commission. He's a graduate of the University of Montevallo and is currently pursuing his MBA from Louisiana State University, Shreveport. He and his husband, Chris Maynard, live in Huntsville with their three pups, Cookie, Artemis, and Puck. I asked him to come on the podcast to talk about his perspective as a patient with diabetes, and so initially I was going to call the episode Patient Perspective. But after doing the interview, I thought, you know, he knows so much about diabetes and is doing such a great job of managing his diabetes that I need to call this a masterclass in diabetes management. Whether you are a medical provider trying to manage other people's diabetes or you are someone who has diabetes yourself, or both, there's no way you're not going to learn something from listening to Mark. I was also very happy to discuss some issues of healthcare disparity. Mark was kind enough to share some of his experiences as a member of both the Black community and the LGBT community, and how that has helped shape his relationship with the healthcare system in general. Also, I should point out that Mark is not my patient. I don't know anything about his medical history other than what he has chosen to share. So it's really a great conversation, and without further ado, here we go. Mark Moore, welcome to The Knowledgeable Provider. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate your time. Hey, thanks. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. So I've already kind of formally introduced you, but you want to uh, introduce yourself and just give us some background. I'm always interested in how people kind of get where they are. Sure. Well, my name is uh, Mark Moore, and I am the Development Director at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center Education Foundation. I've been in fundraising for, I don't know, about eight years or so, and I also have a background in marketing and graphic design, so I've been able to combine those things in my professional career for a while. And then for fun, I do community theater and collect comic books. Very nice. Well, so uh, of all the things that I could talk to you about, the reason we're speaking today is because you were diagnosed with diabetes, and so I wanted to kind of get your perspective on that just as a patient and, and how it's been for you. I assume my audience is mostly clinical medical provider people, I thought I would bring in some of the patient's perspective because we tend to forget that, you know? Absolutely. So you want to talk about the diagnosis? When when did you get diagnosed and how, how did all that come about? 
Sure. It's I've been diabetic for I think over a over 12 years now, I think. I'm so bad with dates, but the way it had happened was I was having some symptoms that included like penile rash and frequent urination. And so that's just naturally concerning. I went to a doc in the box and they were guessing at some different STIs, but I just really didn't feel like it was an STI. They went ahead and preemptively gave me some antibiotics for, for that and ran some tests and some creams, et cetera. It was just a whole bunch of things they, they gave at me. And I continued to do research online based off the symptoms. And when I determined that it seemed like it was a yeast infection that I actually had, I said, well, what could this yeast infection, what could have caused it? And then I just compared that to the other symptoms I was having. Um, and I said, you know, I really think this is diabetes. And so when I went back for the follow-up, and, and complain that, you know, the creams weren't helping and the symptoms weren't lessening. And they said, well, yeah, your test came back negative for all the things we tested you for. And I was like, yeah, because I really think it's diabetes. And they're like, well, yeah, it could be. We could run some tests on that. Uh, but let's try this. You know, they, they just kind of kind of blew me off a little bit. Really? Yeah. And I was just kind of, you know, unimpressed. And it was a dock in the box situation. So I said, okay, Mark, it's time to find a regular physician here in town. And because I hadn't gone to the trouble of finding one since I moved back to Huntsville in 1999. So I asked some friends and I specifically wanted to find someone that was gay friendly. And I got a few recommendations, made the calls. Luckily, I had good insurance. So that made it a little bit easier to find a provider and went in for, you know, an A1C and the first, you know, just general checkup. And it was really kind of funny because both of my parents had diabetes and based on the symptoms, I was already convinced that's what I had. I just was like, what can we do to, to deal with these symptoms? Because this is uncomfortable. And she came back in and she said, hey, um, I hate to tell you this, but you've got diabetes and your A1C is like, I don't know, it was, it was like 10 point something. It was really, really high. I was like, yeah. And she was, it was funny because her, her whole energy was like, I'm bringing this to light and, you know, I'm so don't be afraid, don't be worried kind of energy. And I was like, yeah, I kind of figured that's what it was. I said, so what's the next step, you know? So we instantly started talking about what medications I would try. We started with Combaglize. And then she really pressed home the need for me to not only eat better, but to also exercise, you know, just like a little bit of exercise would go a long way. And um, she also referred me to the hospital's diabetic center that does training. And I looked in that, but it was... It, my insurance didn't cover it. This was like before Obamacare. So a lot of preemptive care just wasn't really built into a lot of insurances. So it was going to be just a chunk of money that I didn't feel like dealing with. So I just went and bought some magazines and checked out some books from the library and just said, okay, we're just going to delve into this. And I got on a really good regimen of eating better and watching my carbon take and doing a walk every day. So that when I went back to my next appointment, my AOC was like down to maybe seven or 6.7, you know, something that was really good. And I had a couple of good follow-ups. And then I just kind of, you know, kind of laid off, got a little lazy, quit exercising as much, eating a little more, you know, sugar that I should. And it went back up again and she fussed at me. And so then I just had to get back on the wagon and start just doing better. The other thing that was interesting in my diagnosis is that when I would tell friends, oh, hey, you know, I was diagnosed with diabetes recently, all of their reactions were so dramatic. 
they would go, oh no, are you okay? And I was like, as long as I take a decent amount of care of myself, I'll keep all my limbs. Uh, So I think people are so used to when people either just catch it way too late or just don't take care of themselves at all. They have those horror stories. But because I saw how hard it was on my mom, uh, my father lost a leg from it. Um, I had another friend who lost a leg from it. You know, I just I had all of this information in my head. I was like, okay, just take decent care of yourself and you'll be okay. And that's truly how I go through life. So it's been to my benefit. And but I and I still occasionally get someone if it's new that they do have that that kind of wide eyed expression. And I, I can see in their mind's eye the idea of people who aren't taking care of themselves that they know in their lives, who are really suffering with it. And occasionally you meet someone that has type one diabetes and theirs is just a much harder to manage condition uh, compared to ours. And, you know, I just kind of factor all that into it. How old were you when you were diagnosed? Early forties, late thirties, something like that. And you you talked about the rash that kind of sent you to the doctor in the first place. Mm Mm-hmm. Looking back, were there anything, was there anything going on prior to that that maybe you, you didn't attribute to diabetes, but but maybe that was coming from diabetes? Well, you know, when, like I said, when I first got it, you know, I'd never had a yeast infection. And when you think about yeast infections, you usually think about them as being something that women get. So I was just kind of like, you know, something's up with my junk and I, I don't appreciate it. <laughs> was really my energy. <laughs> and I sure. was like, I got to get this fixed. And, and and because I'm a, you know, a grown man who, who is sexually healthy and understands how things work, of course, it went through my mind, you know, have I caught something? But it's just I, I just really had a feeling that that wasn't it. And I couldn't tell you why, uh, except for maybe the fact that maybe all of the symptoms didn't line up, you know, as far as lining up with an STD. And as I did more and more research a yeast infection, if, if anyone doesn't know what it feels like on a guy, it's painful, it's itchy, it's very constant, uh, it's ugly, and it's very stressful in that regard. So I knew that I had to figure out what this was and get it addressed quickly. And then for that, you know, you take some fluconazole and it clears it up. And then you deal with, that's for the short term, and then you deal with the long term of limiting how much sugar your body's expelling, um, and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. And that's, in my experience, that's been one of the more common initial things that I've seen is somebody will come in and just even just mention offhand, Oh yeah, these yeast infections all the time. And that's like ding, 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 you know, yeah. to check you for diabetes. And, I, and I'm glad you were able to do the research and kind of advocate for yourself. A lot of patients will say, Oh, you know, I know you're not supposed to Google things, or I know you guys don't like when people Google things, but I'm all about it. I mean, if, if you hadn't done that, you know, who, who knows how long it would have uh, delayed your diagnosis. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I have a, a history of dealing with docs in the box that have disappointed me. You know, I'm glad that they're here because at the end of the day, we need more healthcare providers than we have. You know, we're, we're sorely under-resourced when it comes to healthcare providers. But, you know, when I first moved back to Huntsville, I went in for like a sinus infection or something to a doc in the box. And, and I said, hey, since I'm here, can I go ahead and get an HIV test? Because, I just moved back here. I wasn't familiar with the local HIV clinic and the health department and things like that. And I thought, well, I'll just get one here at the doctor's office as part of my regular sexual health care. And he said, well, do you think you might have contracted HIV? And I said, well, I don't know. That's why I want to test. You know, (laughs) so we were really 
different, really, you know, far apart ideals. And so that was like kind of my first clue that when it comes to my healthcare, I really have to be highly proactive as a person and as a gay man. And then also as a black man, um, there's a lot of distrust of the medical community from both sides of my community. And so I just am very deliberate about being proactive and being aggressive in making sure I'm getting the best quality care I can. So, and I'm so lucky that we have the internet now that, you know, we can go on and really just plug in information and figure things out. And then after you get prescribed something to go in and say, okay, what are the side effects of this? And things that, you know, your pharmacist will tell you, but life is busy. And I rarely take the time, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to block off their time off. They're trying to get things done for all of these patients that are lined up. I'm much rather just grab the stuff, go and do my own research if I'm worried about something. So, uh, and then I can go back and discuss it with my doctor. And she's also really great about having open conversations and really asking good questions and being incredibly thorough, no, no matter what issue I come in with. And she's been really diligent about reminding me that diabetes is progressive and that I have to stay vigilant in how I take care of myself. And by no means am I a poster child for great health. Um, I'm just trying to do the best I can and enjoy life. But I do take what she says seriously. And um, we make adjustments in meds. I manage what I eat and drink, what I take into my body, while still enjoying a lot of the things that I have enjoyed previously. Yeah, I think it's important to have a balance there, especially if you're talking about uh, like type one that shows up in childhood, you know, you can't tell a kid or a teenager not to eat certain things. Yeah. Or, I mean, you can, but they're not going to do it. And not even just teenagers, adults too, because I've worked with people of type one that were adults. And sometimes I would go, you guys are depending on that insulin pump to just like do whatever you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> and are, do you see any endocrinologists at all or no? I don't. I found that uh, working with my primary care doctor has been sufficient. I do have friends that are type two that do feel the need to go to an endocrinologist and seem to be a, having a, a harder time managing their diabetes. But then I also kind of see on like social media, like when they post what they ate and I'm kind of like, well, I'm not sure, you know, what you expected. <laughs> <laughs> like I would feel bad if I ate that too. And, and it also comes from, again, having watched my mother kind of suffer with it uh, in the last years of her life. And just she was just really willful about uh, about her diet and how poorly she followed it. And it just got to a point where I had to, um, you know, because I was the primary grocer, uh, grocery shopper for her that I finally had to say, okay, you know, she's she's later on in life. If this is going to give her joy, then let her have some cookies, you know. And then I have friends that have been termed pre-diabetic, which I know there's debate as to whether that's a, a valid you know, description or diagnosis. But I just really warned them that, sure, it's easy to manage because a huge chunk of my friends are type 2 diabetics. And we all give them warning to say, if you're not here yet, go ahead and take care of yourself now so that you don't get here. Because it still is a hassle and that I have to take medicine regularly that... If I go too long without eating, I physically can feel bad. My mood can shift. Um, if I eat too much, I can get sick. If I eat the wrong things, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable. You know, life before diabetes was easier. And so I really try and warn my friends that even though it's super manageable and I expect to live a long, healthy life, take care of yourself before. Don't get it. Cut, cut back on something because after the fact, you'll have to. 
You know, I miss orange juice so badly, but that's just something I just can't drink like I used to drink because of how it makes me feel. And I tell my friends as I watch them, you know, in fact, one friend says he goes through a gallon a week of juice, of fruit juice. And I'm like, dude, that is like straight sugar into you. It's like you might as well just take some sugar and put in some water and just drink it. <laughs> and it, and again, I am no one's health nut. I am, you know, I eat cake probably once a month. I have a cola fairly regularly. And I also tell my friends that are kind of struggling, you know, I say, don't do as I do, do as I say. It's like the complete opposite. But I just don't do as much as I used to. And uh, I'm really conscious of the things that affect me more. And I wish that my friends that are on the cusp, you know, would, would just kind of take a little better care because I really hate the feelings that are affected by what I eat, how much I eat, when I eat. That's a, that's a hassle. With your mom's history, before you were diagnosed, just earlier in life, was that something that you ever thought about? Like, hey, I, you know, maybe I'm going to be diabetic too, or is that something that was on the horizon for you or no? I never thought about it. I never gave it the slightest thought. Um, I was really going through life carefree, living hard, partying hard, just doing my best, doing the most, and really didn't think of my own mortality in, in any regard. And even, you know, Knowing that that my father died from it, we weren't close, but I was there in the hospital when he was when he got his amputation. And that was chilling, but I still didn't connect it to me and my habits. I think a lot of us have a, a it's not going to be me kind of energy. And I was really just, you know, just ultimately I was in a phase of my life where I was just trying to enjoy life and get the most out of it. And I battled depression. So um, the fact that I was, when I was diagnosed, I was kind of in a good emotional state. So I was just relieved to be in a good emotional state. And the idea of thinking about my health was just not a high priority. I hadn't worked out in a while. I, for, you know, sometime in my 30s, I did go to the gym pretty regularly. Uh, and who knows, probably would have been diagnosed sooner were it not for I was more active when I was younger. But, um, you know, I should have thought about it because, you know, there's heart disease and diabetes and high blood pressure and everything else in my family. But it just wasn't, you know, top of mind for me. Sure. Was there a was there a big emotional response for you after you were diagnosed? I was so nonchalant about it. I I really wasn't surprised. You know, she was my doctor was really stressed to tell me, and I was like, huh, okay, what's next? That literally was my energy uh, because there's nothing I could do about it, and it could be a lot worse. I could name so many things that are worse than diabetes. So I was just kind of like, okay, what's What's next? What do we do? And um, and that's how I moved through life anyway. Um, and just from having, you know, been around a fair amount of people throughout my life who have had a number of different illnesses from cancer to HIV to high blood pressure. You know, I've just always been around people that are living their lives with a number of different um, conditions. Um, I just know you, your options are live or don't live. So I was fortunate and I, I looked at it very fortunately in that she said the one of the first things she told me was that there's a lot of new medicines now that do really awesome things in the body to make it better. And so at the time, I think Comiglise was pretty new. And so we did that. And like I said, my numbers bounced back really quickly. Um, after that, she added me to Jardiance. You know, that's one that makes you expel sugar through urine. 
which is great because it just it just does a lot of good things for your body. Now, the side effect of that for me was then I started seeing some of my yeast infections come back. And so then it became a balancing act of, okay, if I'm going to do this, then I really got to pay even more attention to my diet and my stress level and my general health care. Because if I got sick or was really stressed out and then ate a bunch of sugary things, well, this guess what's going to happen next? So I really had to just I, I still have to be very conscious of of all the things going on in my life. And then um, I guess it's been about a year or so that we added um, one of the weekly injectables uh, to my routine. And so I do Trulicity. She started me on a pill. I think it was uh, Rebellus. Re- right, Rebellus, yeah. Yeah. And boy, I could not handle that. My stomach was so upset from that. And I gave it time because, again, I'm... I've been on different medications for lots of different things throughout my life. And so I'm used to just kind of giving it a few weeks to kind of see if I'll acclimate. Um, but it didn't happen. And I was like, get me off of this. And then she said, well, let's try, let's try Trulicity and see how you do on it. And I've done exceptionally well on it. I find it very easy to tolerate. And then um, my husband, who is also diabetic, he's actually been diagnosed since he was like 20. And it also runs in his family. He um, got on... Another one recently, um, he's on Ozempic. And then one of our best friends is on Mongerno. And so we've dealt with the fact that as the world is realizing these things are great for weight loss, there's been shortages every time you turn around. So uh, there's been times that I've had to skip a week or drop down to a lower dosage in order in order just to get a shot in because of the um, shortages. And that's, that's a little frustrating, but I'm still just so amazed that we have this new medical technology that I can take a weekly shot and I'm losing weight and I'm feeling great and my numbers are good. Uh, my last A1C was like, I think 6.8 or something like that. So my lowest was probably like 5.7. Um, but again, that's when I was exercising. Yeah. The whole shortage thing is kind of, uh, it's infuriating. I mean, you know, on one hand, you have the, okay, people are taking it for weight loss and the people who need it for diabetes can't get it. But then on the other hand, you have the pharmaceutical companies who are still running commercials for the stuff. I feel like there's some fault on both sides. I wish people wouldn't just take it for weight loss, but I also wish the drug companies would uh, get their act together and make sure there's enough supply. I just wish they would make sure there's enough supply because, you know, it, I guess it depends on on if it's a genuine weight loss, like, like you're... Uh, morbidly obese, then sure. Even if you're not diabetic, I think fine, take it. But you're right. When it's vanity, like a lot of the um, celebrities were doing it, that's irritating. Sure. It's kind of like you, you have enough money as a celebrity, you can hire a trainer, you know? <laughs> so, you know, get out of the way. Um, but I, I think it would be easier if they gave people with diabetes first crack. And I don't know how you manage that since our health care is so split up. And also it's irritating too, in that if you don't have good insurance and, and a copay card from the pharmaceutical, you know, it's just so out of reach for some people when prescribing it would just be better for everyone in general, because the long-term care of taking care of someone with uncontrolled diabetes is going to be always worse. And then of course, you know, even though the medicines have been around for a while and I think we have good data on, you know, some long-term effects, you know, there are some people who have more serious negative side effects from this uh, class of medicines, but, you know, life comes with risk. And so that part doesn't bother me as terribly. Do you monitor your sugar at home at all? 
I don't. I used to monitor it religiously daily uh, when I was first diagnosed, and I even bought the kind of testing kit that would connect to my iPhone. So, you know, because I'm all about technology and I'm, oh, this is great. But let me tell you, I absolutely hated pricking my finger. It just irritated me so bad to do it every day. And it just was, it, it was just, I just hated it. So um, when I got to the point that my A1C was showing up good pretty regularly, my doctor told me I did not have to check it all the time. Okay. When she said all the time, I said, I took that to be never. And so... <laughs> I literally just go by my A1C and and how my body feels and behaves. And again, I just I just try to live outside of excess uh, because you know excess is what got me here, uh, and I knew that. That's again back to the I wasn't surprised. I knew how much sugar I took in on a daily basis. Um, so when I was diagnosed, there was no clutching of pearls. I was not surprised. Therefore, I just know okay. Mark, you have a different set of rules now of how much carb intake you can handle and stay healthy. And so I just try and manage it that way and then just do my um, quarterly checkup to make sure my numbers are good. And and it's working out so far. Do you remember when, when you were doing that, when you were tracking your sugar, was it was it eye-opening at all just to see the trends and to see how your sugar responded to what you were doing or or not so much? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was wild to think, you know, what a big jump it could take in a short amount of time you know, uh, based on what I ate and what time of day I tested. And sometimes it was irritating if I would test before I had eaten and it was high. And I thought, is this like leftover from last night? You know, if I test in the morning and I haven't eaten yet and I had a kind of a high number, that irritated me. And I thought, okay, this just means I'm really not doing a good job of, of managing this because this is irritating. But, um, but yeah, I, I just had to move on from that and just kind of, it's, it, I think I look at it also the same way as, you know, when I, um, was trying to actively diet and exercise and was weighing every day, you know, that just becomes this kind of a headache into itself. So I just try not to do that type of check-in, but I'm sure it works for some people, but it just stressed me out. Any other issues with side effects that you've noticed of particular medications? I think a few years ago when I was probably still on the comaglies, maybe just starting the journey, you know, of course we did combinations. Sometimes I would be on two things at a time, two different diabetic medicines at a time. I discovered that if I ate too much, I would have to purge. And it stressed Chris out. Um, Chris is my husband. And he was like, what are you doing? I'm like, um, I ate just a little too much. I'm gonna go throw up. And he was like, that's not right. I'm like, I know, but I just got to get this out of my system. And that only went on for a little bit because I just kind of had to learn, relearn when I'm full. Because, you know, before when, when food is a big deal for you, you just eat and eat and eat and you can eat too uncomfortable and then go on about life. But I found that on these new meds um, that if I went beyond a certain threshold, then I was either going to be miserable all night or I just had to get rid of it. And so once I kind of learned where that threshold was, I didn't have to worry about it anymore. So I don't have to. So I didn't become like. Um, habitual vomiter or anything. Um, but I did have to learn, okay, Mark, this is the limit and stop. And I laugh when some other people around me will go, you want some dessert? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm completely full. And they're like, oh, but don't you have a dessert stomach? I'm like, no, I am literally done and I am not dumb. So I will not put anything else into my body because I don't like to be uncomfortable. <laughs> And, and then the same thing is true once we start on Trulicity because you know, it, it limits your appetite. And I didn't have any side effects from it, uh, luckily, other than, you know, 
what it's supposed to do and that you get full faster. So I don't know if, if that's, you know, usually people think of side effects in a negative thing, like it's making them feel bad, making them sick. I will say it irritates me because I do love food. And so if I get a, you know, a big, big, big steak and some potatoes and some broccoli and I can't finish the whole plate, I am hurt inside. <laughs> the, the little fat child in me cries. Um, <laughs> I guess emotionally hurting is better than physically hurting. Exactly. So, uh, so again, I'm just, I'm really just glad for these new medicines that we have because they're just, they're just making a huge difference. And especially in that I'm seeing, you know, I'm having to buy new smaller clothes. I'm seeing, just seeing the differences in my body, feeling um, better as far as my joints, you know, less stress on my joints and things like that. So, so it's a win. You kind of alluded to it a couple of times, but have you, have you had any experience as far as there can be some stigma associated with the diabetes uh, diagnosis, whether that's people kind of blaming the patient for getting it, or like you were saying, people kind of instantly thinking of the worst consequences. Have you run into that a lot with, with other people or with healthcare providers or not so much? I have run into it with people, just, just like I said, the people being kind of just, oh my God, you know, are you going to die? You know, are you going, are you about to lose a limb? Um, kind of energy. Um, and then I have some other health providers that just kind of keep an eye on things when I do checkups with them. And they usually come from the attitude of, hey, your sugar came kind of high. And I'm like, well, yeah, because you did it from uh, a urine test. So I have this medicine. It makes me pee sugar. And they're like, oh, that makes sense. And then they back off. But no one gives me, you know, it's lucky being a guy we don't run into the same fat shaming, I think, that women do when they go to the doctor. Um, so I don't deal with that. And usually my doctor is really complimentary because I almost always am showing a weight loss when I go to the doctor or or, or a constant. Um, when she does the full-on test of like, you know, checking for sensitivity in my feet, I'm always scoring high on that. And I always go to the eye doctor and get those tests to then send back to her. Um, so we're tracking. She, again, she's just really good about tracking everything around it, which is another reason why I never felt like I needed to go to a specialist like an endocrinologist, because she is not only doing what she's doing, but she's also having me check out these other things um, as well and then report back to her. Uh, so, yeah, so it's been good in that regard. Now, one interesting thing that did happen was when I used to work at an HIV clinic, I was doing a presentation once. And one of the things that we talk about when we're talking about patients living with HIV is that it's such an easy disease state to take care of now compared to what it used to be. And we will say it's easier than having diabetes. And I said that to a group of high schoolers once in a presentation, and some of them got mad and went back to their parents because some of them were type one diabetics. And I had not drawn the distinction between type one and type two. I was speaking solely as a person with type two because once you get on an HIV med, it's just much easier to get to an undetectable state, uh, much easier to manage, you know, less drug interaction problems, less side effects, all those things. It's just easier to deal with. Um, your diet's not going to make your HIV do something weird, like with diabetes. And so then I had to explain to the school counselor, no, I was speaking specifically about type 2 diabetes. But it but also was an opportunity for me to learn the differences in type 1 and kind of the extra hurdles they have to go through and the constant monitoring and, and especially how hard it can be on a young body because they're, they're, they're growing, um, they're learning to take care of themselves, they're learning to respond to the signals that they're um, 
monitors and body are giving them. But, uh, but that was one interesting kind of pushback that I got about diabetes uh, at a point in my life. But I just, cons- you know, again, there could be so many worse things to have. And, um, and I'm just really fortunate for the life that, I, that I'm able to live. Sure. And it sounds like you really do a great job of, of taking care of, your, of the situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe in imbalance. So there's certain things I allow myself to enjoy um, that my doctor probably wish I wouldn't. Um, but when I'm clear with her about, okay, this is what I do and this is what I don't do, she then gives me the the green flag to carry on because the numbers are speaking for themselves. She just wants me to stay vigilant so that I don't get lazy and fall behind on being um, deliberate about what I put into my body. And then what she really needs me to do is exercise more, which I know that. So we just got to get on that trip soon. A 10 or 15 minute walk, you know, every other day, it would just make a huge, you know, difference. And so right now I'm in school, in addition to working full time and having freelance and a social life and, a, and a, being a newlywed, um, I don't have time to exercise right now. I, I don't have it in me, but um, that is my goal is to soon as school is over is to get back to some sort of regular uh, routine. Yeah. The numbers don't lie. I mean, you can, it's hard to argue that, you know, if what you're doing is working, then great. Yeah. And it, and it keeps me sane because, you know, I have a definite cola addiction. So, um, so I take a, I, I, I get a fountain drink and I mix it with diet Coke and regular Coke. And it's like mostly diet with a little Coke to kill the taste. And I'm sure it's weird. Everybody sees me do it. Um, <laughs> But it's what it works for me. It gives me the it, it, it satisfies that craving I have for cola uh, without the diet over aftertaste. And I've tried to just go full on diet, but I don't know how people do it. You know, people can train their taste buds to do certain things. I'm not the one like that's disgusting. <laughs> um, I've tried Coke Zero. That actually makes my stomach upset. So I don't know what's in that formula. And I have some friends that are giving up cola, so they're doing things like drinking sparkling water. And they're like, you want to try that? And I'm like, I also consider sparkling water kind of disgusting. So <laughs> I've given up orange juice. You know, that's my big thing. I just had to give up, and I and it still hurts me. But I don't believe that life should be completely devoid of the things you enjoy. And so if this is one of the things I enjoy, then it's something I'm going to continue to enjoy. It means that I, for example, I rarely have ice cream. I rarely have cookies. Um, there's so many things that I don't allow myself to enjoy on any sort of regular basis as as my means of maintaining so that I can have my cola every day. Yeah, that's amazing. It sounds like you've worked out a great balance and all that. It's working for me. I, I want to circle back to something you said earlier. I'm very curious about your experiences, both as a black man and as a gay man with the, the healthcare system in general or with the diabetes diagnosis? And maybe maybe I should ask that as two separate questions, but can, can you talk more about that? Sure. So for, for example, when I was working at a clinic that started as an HIV clinic and then became a federally qualified health center, one of the things that we pushed in our marketing was that we were a clinic open and affirming of the LGBTQ community. And at one point, a provider who had moved here from another state kind of pushed back on me saying that because she says, of course we are, you know, we're a doctor's office for everybody. We shouldn't have to advertise that. And I said, let me remind you, you're in the deep South now. And we absolutely have to advertise that because I have too many friends who have gone to their physician and are unable to be completely open and honest with them about um, sexual health concerns that they have 
have been judged and preached at negatively from the healthcare providers in ways that are completely homophobic. And I said, so for me, it is important that people take the time to find a provider that is going to be affirming of them and also be knowledgeable about the things that will be of specific import to their health regarding their sexuality and gender. And and that's when I was also had to do education for, for them. I said, you know, let's take, for example, that lesbians, I think, have a higher rate of certain cancers that, you know, gay men might want to get Gardasil even if they're over 45 years old. You know, there's there's all these little things that come into play that are specific to us. And so it's important that we all know kind of the questions to ask and we find providers that are also going to continue to ask those questions. I still remember, you know, decade, I mean, gosh, it's been over a decade too that I first got on PrEP and my MD did not know about PrEP. And so I had to educate her. And then the next time she came back, she understood it. She had done her research as well, which is also something I appreciate that she's continually taking in new knowledge. Um, and I think that's also important. You know, I've, I've had friends that have had doctors that, you know, I don't think they're t- taking any, any new information and that shows in their treatment. And I've had friends that have had, again, those doctors that were homophobic that say something negative about their sexuality while treating them, give them bad care, bad advice, don't give them care, all of those things. And so I just think it's important that that we're diligent about that. Then from being Black, going through the, the pandemic was was so eye-opening because it was a no-brainer to me to follow the rules that were coming from Dr. Fauci and from the CDC. And so we're masking now? Okay, great, we're masking. Oh, there's a, a, a immunization coming? Okay, let's get, let's get the shot. But then I started actually talking to a small group, but still a group of Black people that were hesitant to get the shot because they still had family memories of Tuskegee and knowing what the medical community did to Black people uh, in the name of science and the abuses that happened there. And I was like, I get it, but we've got to move forward. We've got to trust the, we've got to trust that as long as we're doing what everybody else is doing, then it's going to be safe for us. So you know, if they do some of those little sideways, I think we can still use our intuition about it. But for me, it was like, okay, we gotta we gotta be conscious about that. And again, my male privilege comes into play in that I don't face the same sort of healthcare discrimination that say a black woman would. You know, they they have a higher rate of mortality during childbirth. They don't get treated for pain as readily. Um, there's all of those issues and I don't, I have not experienced those myself. And I think part of that is my male privilege. And then part of it also too, is that I just kind of come out of the gate ready to advocate for myself. I just start, I start at that point. And so when you start there, it's, it's kind of hard for someone to push, push down on you. Yeah. Thank you for talking about that. I, I'm getting a patient. I haven't even met him yet, but he's coming to me because his doctor would not prescribe PrEP. That's so irritating. Yeah. It's crazy that that, that, that is still around. Yeah. And and even worse, you know, what we're seeing politically, you know, there's a group suing because they don't want to pay for PrEP in general health care and general insurance uh, because, you know, the Affordable Care Act allows that, you know, it can be covered under our insurance. And for someone to say we don't believe in that, therefore, we don't want the insurance to cover it is so frustrating. And then if you have a pharmacist or a doctor that has some sort of moral uh, objection to it, it's even that much more irritating because 
even if you do have a, a moral objection to it, it is better for the collective community for people to not contract and spread HIV. That's just the nuts and bolts of it. And fiscally, it is also better uh, because preventing disease is better than taking care of disease. It is a cheaper endeavor and people need to realize that. And that becomes very frustrating when you're in a state like Alabama, where our politicians can be so problematic. And then the other thing, too, you know, again, going back to the differences in uh, healthcare between white people and people of color, is that the message still isn't getting out enough to black and brown people about the availability of PrEP. And that's still frustrating and scary. And I'm not even in uh, healthcare anymore, and it still stresses me out because the numbers haven't improved enough. We're we're still seeing lots of gay white men readily using PrEP and not enough black and brown people, men and women, uh, using it. And those are kind of like the target groups. And then you think about um, the transgender population and some of the meds have been tested on trans people and some haven't. And I'm like, you put everybody in the in the trial study. What are you doing? You know, if you're going to do a trial study, put everybody in it so you can know its effective rate on everybody involved. And I, and that's something that drug companies need to do. And then, of course, there's also the, the fact that, you know, uh, Gilead had the the patent on Truvada and they kept that going, kept that going. And then they didn't come out with Discovy until the patent was about to expire and Truvada was going to become a generic. And, you know, Gilead does a lot of great things as far as providing money to HIV clinics and FQHCs and things like that. But I just think that maybe Travada should have been a generic from jump because part of the science behind it was funded by the taxpayer. And, you know, we've got to deal with with that, the fact that a healthy community is better for the individual. And we've got to start treating medicine as a utility as a public service and not keeping it in this kind of class um, system that we're in now. Sure. That, that is a truly in, infuriating part of healthcare in our country, for sure. Yeah. In fact, I was in London um, last summer and we were talking to a woman who had just become uh, a British citizen who was from America. And she and her husband had moved there a few years prior. And, and literally that it was like that year the um, the paperwork had been completed and, and she was now a, a UK citizen. And we were asking her, what did she like better? What was different? And she said that one of the hardest things to get used to was that when she would go to the doctor there, she would ask them what her copay was. And they were just like, what are you talking about? Uh, it took her a while to kind of get used to that. And I thought, we need that. And I, I just hope we can get to that point because it's ridiculous that a country as wealthy as ours in a world that is as advanced as ours and as smart as ours is still dealing with the fact that everybody doesn't have ready, affordable access to health care. Because again, and, and I don't even come from that from a truly altruistic standpoint. The community is healthier when individuals are healthier and individuals are healthier when the community is healthier. And that's just how it works. I need my neighbor to be healthy. Um, we saw that in the pandemic. You know, how many people had pre-existing conditions that made them more vulnerable because they never went to the doctor. They never took care of themselves. How many people couldn't didn't have a regular doctor because they never went to the doctor. They just didn't have the access. Um, and they, and some had built up distrust of the system. So even once we started getting treatments and, and testing, they were distrustful of the system. And we've just got to break through all those walls so that everyone recognizes the importance of healthcare and everyone then has access to healthcare. 
then we can get on to access to healthy food. We won't talk about how fruits and vegetables are so much more expensive than fast food. Right. Sure. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I even feel a little guilty being part of that system because I, you know, as, as a paramedic and a nurse, I, you know, you just take care of whoever comes in the door and you don't have to worry about it. I mean, they have to worry about it. But me personally, I was never, you know, close to the money side of things. But now in private practice, we, you know, we have a pretty bougie practice. Like if you don't have insurance and money, you know, you can't be a patient with us. Yeah. Um, and, and that makes, you know, it, it makes me feel guilty. I mean, to be honest. Well, we're in a capitalistic world and um, that does become the problem because, I mean, uh, you know, as I said earlier, I like technology. So I like earning a good wage and I've always been, you know, trying to do better financially. That's the world in which we live is then what do you do in that world to to make it better? Um, and we have the same problem at the clinic, you know, all, whereas we were a type of clinic that could take anybody, you still had to make X amount of dollars to keep the doors open and for everyone to get paid and all those kind of things, you know. So it's the system we're in and we just have to do the best we can within that system. Yeah. And that's kind of our thing too. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a small business and, and I, I wish it wasn't like that, but that is how it is. And the other thing too, is that, you know, there's, there are, I, even once we, and I hope we do get to a point where universal healthcare is a thing, there's still going to be a place in our system because we are so capitalistically minded for places to still stay like, like in your model, uh, because there's going to be people who, for whatever reasons are going to want that. And you see that even in, socialist countries you know people want to act like oh then you have no choice and you you're going to be waiting these long lines this that, and other you know if you have the means you can still upgrade you know right. and, and i personally love an upgrade my thing is i want the the floor to be raised so that everyone is you know taken care of and then there'll still be places there'll still be room for for-profit models that offer you know a higher level of service, concierge service, you know, whatever that looks like. We also have got to get to a point where we're training more healthcare pro professionals without saddling them with um, the high debt that we have done. Uh, you know, we've got to get, because we have a shortage of healthcare providers and we've got to pay them all across the board, you know, well, you know, you're seeing, you're, you're finally seeing now, I think, coming out of the pandemic, the lower paid people like CNAs and things like that being paid more because uh, out of necessity. But we we should be approaching that from the standpoint of it takes all of those people in a hospital from the janitor to the food people, to the CNAs, to the nurses, to the MPs, the PAs and the doctors and the specialists and the anesthesiologists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone needs to be paid um, their worth to make the whole system work. And so we've got to figure out a way to educate more people with less debt and then pay them uh, a quality wage to provide the services that they provide. It's a tricky issue. There's a lot of balance that has to be struck there. I, I wish I knew how to go about it. I I share your goals. I, I agree. I wish we could be there. And I, I have no idea how to actually get there. Me either. And I want to know desperately. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. And, you know, even in our practice where we have, for the most part, affluent people, we still struggle. We spend all day still fighting with insurance companies and people can't get what they need. And the mm -hmm. whole system just sucks. Yeah. You know, the power that insurance companies have over the express wishes of a physician is exhausting. And, and it's especially frustrating when a person can change jobs and then their new insurance will not cover a medicine that's worked for them for, you know, five years. Sure. And all 
Like, oh, well, this we don't cover this medicine. You're going to figure something else. Well, you know, it's the one medicine of the three that are offered that actually works. And, or there was also a story I read recently where um, the person lived pretty close to a hospital, had to go there um, by ambulance, and they were trying to charge them an you know, out-of-network fee um, because they said that they didn't have any contracts with the ambulances that ran in that area. And they said, well, who do you have contracts with? And they said, oh, we have with this helicopter company. So they so they priced it and said, oh, well, then I'll call the helicopter next time. But when once they looked at it, like, oh, that makes zero sense. And so then they they paid that bill and waived it in the future. But again, it, it, we're just lacking a lot of common sense in the system. Have you ever had any personal experience with that as far as having to uh, switch medicine because of cost or or switching insurance providers and they won't cover what you're on? Um, I have had um, some changes when I've switched insurances, but I was able to work it out for the most part. The only one that was really frustrating was that I used to get uh, my prescriptions by mail order and they would come in these little individual packets. It was just super convenient. And then I changed to an insurance company that wouldn't, that literally wouldn't allow mail order prescriptions. And I thought, what year is this? What are you doing? And so I switched away from that. So that was more just an irritant than anything else. And it made it forward in other ways because like my co-pays were like significantly lower. So it just kind of balanced out. For the most part, I've just been lucky in that I haven't had that, those sort of changes. Uh, the weirdest thing that ever happened with my insurance was my very first job out of college uh, and this is one of one of the first times I really noticed how flawed the system was. We had to pay for our insurance out of our paychecks, and my coworker, who was uh, a female, had to pay at least twice as much as I did out of her paycheck. Now it's more than that because I just remember just being so blown away, and it was just because she was of the age that you could have a child. She wasn't married, had no intention to have kids, but because she could have kids and she was a woman, her insurance premium was significantly higher. Then at some point, after a couple of years, they changed it and everyone's just went to like a flat rate, which I appreciated because that was more fair, even though it meant I now had to pay more. Bring it back to diabetes. How do you feel about it now compared to when you were initially diagnosed? Where are you right now with it? I feel grateful in that it is, it is managed and it's been easy to manage. And I feel supremely grateful that, again, I have access to um, the medications and, and truly the best medications. These new weekly shots are just great. It's convenient. It's easy to remember. The numbers show so great for me. And um, the weight loss has been great. So I love that aspect of it. You know, the parts that irritate me about it are the same. I, I miss excess. I miss being able to eat a whole bag of chips or or eat a whole sleeve of cookies or drink orange juice. I miss those things. And then I I, I look at people who have diabetes that are friends that still kind of go full out. And I just go, oh, my God, how can you do that? Because I physically can't. Like, if I were to do it, I would be sick. It would make me ill. But boy, do I miss it. <laughs> and then and the other thing, too, I guess that one other interesting thing is that, uh, as I mentioned, you know, I battled depression uh, when I was younger. And one thing I noticed after being diagnosed with diabetes was that when I would, when my blood sugar would be low, it felt the same as when I was in a deep depression. Oh, interesting. And that was so stressful and irritating because it wasn't like I was fully out of my depression. I just had gotten better. So now, now I'm having to kind of balance these, these recurring feelings that I thought I'd kind of dealt with and controlled. And so in addition to physically feeling bad, I was also emotionally feeling bad. And so I, I really, really resented for several years this new tightrope I had to walk 
uh, with my food because it would affect how I felt emotionally and mentally. And that's the other thing that I try and warn my friends about. You know, I just said, you've got to, because again, a lot of my friends also deal with depression. And so I'm just like, trust me, you just don't want to have this extra added drama of it. And I, I even had one friend that he had depression, fibromyalgia, and was pre-diabetic. And I just pleaded with him. I was like, you have got to not add this to your to what you already are dealing with. He did not listen. <laughs> so um, so he's now got a whole new set of meds and a whole new set of dramas to deal with. And you know, that's just kind of the way it goes. But um, yeah, that's that's the other the only other really interesting thing for me about having depression was I mean about having diabetes was how it would mimic the way I felt in my depression when I would, you know, if my sugar was low or if I just hadn't eaten in a while. So it makes me very conscious of eating at regular intervals throughout the day. If I have a busy day and I have a meeting that, you know, runs through lunch, I have to get pretty forceful and say, I I have to stop this now because not only will it affect my mood, but I will also physically feel sick if I go too long without eating something. And, and I might could, do like snacks, but I'm not really a snacker. You know, I am a meal eater. And I also haven't really found a snack that you know, even sometimes snacks, you know, like whether it's, I don't know, some sort of bar or a beef jerky or, you know, whatever you might do that's not terribly bad. You know, if, if it's not just like to me a more balanced meal, when I get to meal time, then I'm still going to be kind of icky. Um, so I found that I find that stop gaps don't benefit me. I need to have a regular interval of eating and I need to break my fast pretty early after I get up. So, you know, some people skip breakfast completely and I try intermittent fasting for a hot minute and that I just did not, it did not work for me. I also, because I take most of my meds in the morning, I like to eat pretty soon thereafter because I don't like all that, all those meds in my gut before I start to eat because that makes me feel bad. So again, it's just being really conscious of works, of what works for my body. And then I just try and encourage the, the friends I meet, the friends I have, uh, when they're asking about their, you know, different things around health and diabetes, just to listen to their bodies, you know, be attentive to what your body is telling you. Any other advice you would give to new diabetics? Walk, you know, do don't and 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 that's and that's the other thing. Walk, don't run, don't join CrossFit, don't go crazy. Again, I can't speak for everybody, but I found because I did try like a. Um, one of those group exercise classes where they have you running around the building and pushing crazy things and doing all this stuff. And I literally threw up on the people doing too much also made me feel bad. So it's, it's, it's about finding balance. So take a, take a 15 minute walk three times a week, cut out excess, enjoy what you can eat something balanced, include the food groups and get plenty of rest. That's the other thing to drink and, oh, and hydrate. It's just the basics. How about the healthcare community for for everyone who's out there taking care of diabetics? What would you what would you like us all to know? Keep up with everything that's new. You know, I was re- I've been really surprised by how many of my friends who are newly diagnosed came out with a with a metformin prescription. That's all they got. Okay, now granted, metformin is great and it is part of my regimen too. But the fact that it you know we're in the twenty twenties, you know this decade and all you walked out with some metformin, you know, there's, we have good medicine out there. <laughs> We've got a lot of good things to, um, to deal with that. So I like, again, I just like the fact that my doctor is really, and, and because I think the pro- part of it too, is that they get metformin, 
They go home, they start taking it, and then they call them and they're like, why is my stomach upset all the time on day? Because you're just taking metformin. You know, you're taking a, because you're taking a lot of metformin is usually what it is. Because when they do it by itself, they're usually prescribing a, a fair chunk of it. And I'm like, there's so much, there's so many medicines out there that do more for you, offer a, additional benefits, whether it's, you know, weight loss or cholesterol or, you know, like I think Ozempic has some other things that, as far as how it deals with um, the visceral fat. So it's kind of like different, different medicines have additional benefits on top of treating diabetes. And so I would say pro- providers is just keep on top of what different medicines are out there that are new and offer additional benefits for your patients. And then talk to your patient about, you know, about balance. You know, it's, you know, most of them got there through excess. You know, I, I have met a few people who pretty much kind of inherited the capacity for developing type 2 diabetes who at first glance look fairly fit, but somehow still got it. I used to talk to one of my friends. She loved to eat candy. She ate candy all the time. And she was a very slim person. And I said, you're going to mess up and be like a skinny diabetic, you know, because at the end of the day, it is still the sugar going through your body, making your pancreas work. And, you know, everything that's happened with insulin and, you know, your body can only do what it can do. So I would say, you know, just again, talking to those people about where they, how they got there in a non-judgmental way and what incremental steps they can do to have long-term success. Part, I think part of the reason that I had the first kind of hiccup with with my a1c is where where it went down really low and i was like yay and then i kind of really kind of let go because i had just done too much because when i first got it i was like oh i'm gonna be the best diabetic patient ever and so i was doing so much exercise i was eating so well you know i was cutting back on all these things i enjoyed and it worked for a little while until until when i rebounded then i went back to a lot of bad habits so it's, I think it's like anything, you just kind of have to tell people to let's determine what's going to give you long-term success uh, to make you healthy and happy and, and give you balance. Yeah. I think anything extreme like that is going to be hard to maintain for, for most people. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the medicine thing, I hope everybody's aware of the, all the new classes of medications out. I feel like you'd have to almost be living under a rock these days not to know. But I do, I, I had the experience when you were talking earlier of, of people not realizing that they're supposed to be glucose in your urine. I, I, I've been around a couple of situations where everybody was freaking out and it's like, wait, they're on a, they're on an SGLT2 inhibitor. Like they're, they're supposed to be glucose in their urine. It's paying attention to all those little things. And I'm sure it's stressful to be taking in all that new information, but providers need to be aware of that. And then patients need to be paying attention as well. And, you know, communicating what they're getting from other doctors, if they have that going on too. I think that's a, you know, I always have my list from my multiple physicians when I go to each physician. So like, if you're prescribing me something new, I want you to know everything I'm already taking. And again, that just comes down to just everyone being responsible for their own healthcare. That's a huge deal. Cause we're all terrible at communicating with each other between offices and, and things. Um, I, I definitely feel reassured when the patients are taking the initiative and know what they're taking. And it's almost dangerous not to, or not to have somebody advocating for you. Absolutely. And then, you know, there's some of these new systems where, that I know that different EMRs can plug into where they can trade more information with with one another. I just hope one day we get to a system where it's just national. Yes, I wish. Yes. It really needs to be. It's. I don't know why it's not there now. 
that would just make it easier. Because what if you, you know, what if you're someone who's starting to lose some of your mental faculties, you know, you really need, and you don't have someone that's there taking care of you to, to also be your advocate. Or what if you move? Or what if you're in an accident? You know, I think we just, we, we really have to get to a point where that information is easier to access and, and it'd be more holistic. Yes. I, I don't understand why there's not just a cloud where everybody's, you can just look up what happened to everybody, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It would make it so much easier. I feel like that's a pretty good place to stop. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Anything else that came to mind? No, it's been fun. I always love talking to you. Such an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. If you ever want to come on and talk more about the healthcare system in general, I, lo- I love where that went. I'd love to talk about that more. I'm always glad to talk about the healthcare system. I, it's a real passion of mine. And I really, I really hope as I grow up, <laughs> even though I'm over 50, that I can find more ways to bring about some sort of benefit. You know, I continue to vote. I think that's one of the biggest powers we have is to find politicians that that think like we think and that want want better for everyone. You know, I'm just I'm continuing to look for ways and groups to organize with that can that are that are asking the tough questions and trying to formulate real solutions. I think a lot of us know what the problem is. I think we're just at a point of, you know, how do we fix it? All right. Mark Moore, you're an amazing human. I love you. Thank you so much for coming on. I love you. And hugs to all the providers. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thank you again to Mark Moore for such a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate all of your insight and being willing to share your story with everyone. If you'll check out the show notes, there are links to some articles that back up some of the statements that Mark was making about healthcare disparity among different groups of people. I don't really think of anything he said as being controversial. But you never know who might be out there listening, so just want to make sure we're not spreading any disinformation around here. Mark mentioned the clinic he used to work at that's called Thrive Alabama. I'll also put a link to their website in the show notes. I've never had any dealings with them personally, but they seem like a really fantastic organization. And if you happen to know anyone around here that might benefit from their services, I think it's a good place to recommend. Also, I know I don't really need to point this out for all the healthcare folks who are listening. But I did want to say that sometimes when people only get put on metformin or an older medicine like Actos and not on any of the newer medications, a lot of times that is more of a cost issue or an insurance issue than it is the provider not knowing about the medications. There's no one answer that's right for everyone. And there are so many possible reasons why you might choose to use one medicine over another for a specific patient. But I hope everyone would feel comfortable speaking with their doctor or other medical provider if you have any questions about new medications or if there are any other options out there for you. We are definitely guilty sometimes of just letting things ride if they're working. And sometimes if the patient doesn't say anything about, for instance, the raging diarrhea that they're having because of metformin, we might just assume that everything's lovely and go on. So if you're a patient, please follow Mark's example. Get involved in your care. Advocate for yourself. Be an active participant in your care. And if you're a provider, please make sure that you're taking the time to listen to your patient's concerns and make sure that you're providing the best, most appropriate care you can for every single patient. I'll leave you with one more little clip from our conversation. It doesn't really have anything at all to do with diabetes, but it just made me smile and I wanted you to hear it. As always, thanks for listening and I hope to see you next time. There's so many things I could talk to you about. I was thinking the (laughs) other day, you know how... You know how when somebody just sort of happens to know a celebrity, like you, you know, grew up, like grew up together, went to high school or whatever, and now you get to go around and say, "Oh, I know so and so." That's how I feel about you. I feel like I was just, <laughs> I feel like I was just in the right place at the right time, and now you're like the name I get to drop. You know? 
That's hilarious. I don't know if I'm a big name to drop, but it but something funny did happen regarding a celebrity at my wedding. Um, there was an actor there who's friends with my partner, and someone came up to me, one of my friends. They said, "Mark, is that Ethan Embry at your at your wedding?" And I was like, "Yeah," and and I was just not a lot about it because you know it was my wedding, and. <laughs> And they're like, of course you would have, you know, someone and they'd like named his movies and stuff. And I'm like, yeah. And I knew him from a couple of TV shows, but ultimately it was just kind of like, yeah, well, he's Sonny's, you know, man. So, <laughs> right. It's just kind of fun that way. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. And I was, I was not at all surprised to find out that there was a celebrity at your wedding. <laughs> All right, that does it for this episode of Knowledgeable Provider. I'm your host, Jody Marks. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like or subscribe or follow and leave a nice five-star review. And as always, stay safe, take care of yourself, and take care of your patients in that order. Thank you.